G'day and welcome back to the Humans of Agriculture podcast. Today I'm sitting down with Ted Langley, who's one of the Syngenta Growth Award winners. Now, did say we're getting towards the tail and we are getting very, very close to wrapping up these stories. And if you haven't listened to them, check them out. We've got, over the last few weeks, we've been sharing different Growth Award winners and they've come from the wine industry, from agronomy, from cotton growing. They have covered everything. Um, it's been fascinating. Now, 18 months ago, tragedy struck at the Langley's property at Pine Hill in South Australia. After suffering a medical episode, Ted Langley's brother would pass away. After 30 years in a partnership together, succession to the next generation would be immediate. Today, 140 years on from when the Langley family first started farming on the property, Ted farms alongside his daughter and two nephews and continues to manage the family's legacy. If there's something that really stuck out to me as part of this episode, it's that the real constant in the whole time the family's been farming is around the importance of evolution. And I think this is something that Ted really talks to really well and something that I really got away from it. So let's jump into it. Firstly, you're one of a series of people that we're chatting to as part of the Syngenta Growth Awards, and we've chatted to a bit of a mixture. Obviously, agronomists, but also winemakers. You're the productivity grower winner for the Syngenta Growth Awards 2023. You've got a little bit of overseas travel, I think, planned either. I think it's this year, 2024, I believe you guys are heading overseas. You probably know more about it than me. But mate, welcome to the Humans of Agriculture podcast. Thank you. Yes. No, I actually don't know when the travel is, but it's, it's, it is this year, but um, I'm not sure if it's June or later in the year. Well, we'll keep our eyes peeled for your little overseas jaunt, wherever that takes you. But mate, firstly, how's the Christmas, how's New Year's and how's the start of 2024 looking for you? Um, well, we were starting off having an early harvest and then the rain turned up down in this area. So we sort of got a week in and then a rain and then it, it just seemed to be a year. It took a long time for the grain moisture to drop back down for receival standards. And that was very frustrating when you've got a bit of sun, a bit of wind, but the moisture won't drop. And it just took a long time to do. But in the end for us, we sort of finished up at an, an average sort of time. We normally finish between around Christmas, New Year. If you have a good run, you can do a lot in a fortnight if you get a good run and everything goes smoothly. But it normally takes a month, I guess, down this way for most guys to sort of make a fair hole in harvest. And then, uh, yeah, so we sort of had a few little breaks there, but it's not really a break when you're waiting to finish your workload and your harvest for the year. Sitting there is actually quite frustrating, even though you're not doing anything, but uh, watching a bit of cricket and things over the summer. So yeah, it's been, yeah, we eventually got there. Once harvest is done, Ted, what do you look forward to? What do you do for fun once you've got that stressful, enjoyable, exciting time of year done? Well, for all of my life, our families had a property at Robe in the southeast of South Australia, which is only an hour and a half away. So it's just like clockwork to head straight to the beach as soon as as soon as that's done. Once the stock, we still run some stock. So once they're in shape to sort of leave for a week or two and then just pop down to the beach and just enjoy sitting on the beach and not doing a lot. When you, I guess when you work physically hard, I actually enjoy sitting there doing very little on the beach and just having a bit of a swim every every now and then and that's sort of my relaxation rather than doing anything strenuous but uh, we uh, some friends go off water skiing and things like that and that's that's great fun obviously but that looks like work to me I'd rather just sit there and watch so <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm with you actually. I kind of quite like literally just doing nothing, just doing, reading a book for a little bit if you feel like it, snoozing, whatever. <laughs> yeah. No, it's sort of, and it's a bit of the, the towny life, I guess, living when you're on holidays in, in a town, when you're used to being on the rural property, you know, out from town and uh, just being able to walk down the street and grab a coffee or a brunch or something or other, or just walk to dinner. And that's, uh, yeah, that's a nice little change. It doesn't matter which little town you're in or village or city you're in, but that's a, that's a nice little thing for a farmer to be able to do. Absolutely. It's the simple things, Ted. So tell me when you're not on holidays, enjoying your brunch and coffees and, and everything else, tell me a little bit about the neck of the woods that you call home. Yeah. So Border Town is the, is the closest town. We're a little locality of called Pine Hill, which is uh, about 10 kilometres out. And uh, the Tatiara is the name of the district. So we're on the Victorian border in, in South Australia. And we're just a little patch of soil that's sort of quite unique in this region. It's a sandier soil to the north and to the south and to the west. And uh, it's an area, there's a lot of diverse agriculture. There's just about everything you can really do. There's irrigation. We have underground water here. So those people that have got the rights to water can irrigate. So there's a lot of dry land loosen as well as irrigated loosen with that. And then there's vineyards and some dairy. So water for grazing and uh, just about any broad acre crop. And, and then with that irrigation crops as well. So, so, so a few specialty things. So it's, it's quite a unique little area. So you can diversify to whatever you want. Even a neighbour does uh, gladioli. So that's something very interesting to, to see right through the fence and um, what they get up to. So uh, yeah, it's a very diverse little area. There's a lot of uh, long-term family farms here and it's sort of a smaller area and not many have come from outside, have come to this area because it is sort of a, a quite a smaller area. Tell me, what is gladioli? Do I need to go and Google something? So Dame Edna, the late Dame Edna used to have gladdies, ring gladdies, and then hand them out to the audience. So they're just a, a it's a bowl and it has a long flower of various different colours. And it's, it's one of those you can sort of buy and sit on the, in a vase on, on the shelf and it'll flower and another flower open out as it goes up the stem. So it's, uh, yeah, I think they're from Holland originally or somewhere over there. But uh, yeah, this is sort of the Australian market growing out bulbs the neighbour does for anyone that buys a gladioli bulb probably would come from the Tatiara. There you go. I did just Google them. I do recognise them. Didn't recognise the name. Is it just you on the, on the farm? It's obviously a family farm. Yes. No, so it's a family farm. We've been here for uh, 140 years, but uh, at the moment it's my daughter and two nephews. Unfortunately, my brother passed away 18 months ago suddenly on the farm. And from a medical episode. So my brother and I did farm together for 30 odd years, but unfortunately he did pass away 18 months ago, but his nephews are on the farm. So, so we're still sort of continuing that on as, as a family farm in a partnership. So we're two younger nephews and, uh, yeah, and, and my daughter. Well, sorry to hear that, Ted, but, um, I presume the, the next generation keep you on your toes a little bit as well. No, well, they definitely do. And that's what. Yeah, well, it's just exciting, sort of, sh you know, sharing what we do, understanding, seeing them learn the ropes, I guess, and, and be interested into bee farming. And it just, it, well, I guess it keeps you young to an extent, having younger people around and working in the team. So, yeah, it, it has 
it, it is a good thing and it's a good feeling and everyone's keen to be here and uh, and that's what it's about so enthusiastic the other thing we have employed backpackers for harvest and stuff and we had one one this year and that's sort of good fun so fella from a different country and a little different perspective on a lot of things and yeah you have a bit more fun but and and obviously and, and a young person as well so yeah another young one in the team absolutely so mate how how's the the farm evolved you, you mentioned you've been been farming with your brother for 30 odd years how did it evolve in the time since you guys took over in what the early 90s um, well, I suppose we're at that age. So probably when I started, we were cultivating and preparing the soil was, was definitely the norm in the district and, and the whole country. And being, we were fortunate enough, our father did let us have some say and some control over decisions. So there's a bit of a mixed bag, but I'd say traditionally in this area, the father or the grandfather holds onto the reins and doesn't let the next generation try many new ideas. But our father fortunately said, well, yes, you can. So we weren't absolutely the first ones in the district to, to try and no-till. And that's the sort of the direction we went in the cropping. And we were probably half cropping and half livestock, half sheep. When, when we started on the farm, my brother and I, he was, say, two years older than me, so a similar age. So, and we just sort of transitioned into the cropping. The cropping sort of taken over. The livestock, we've run sheep, merino, merino sheep for wool and then bred to a few replacement merinos and then prime lambs over the rest. And that's sort of pretty st standard for this area. But it just, the, like everyone knows, the wool job hasn't really changed in, in 30 years. And you can make money out of it, but things haven't progressed like in the cropping side. So generally, the cropping has now is now three quarters of our operation and livestock's only a quarter, but it's still there in the background and it provides different areas. But going into that no-till thing is probably where we sort of transitioned in and, and every, every person of my age or around my age would have the story about their father or grandfather saying, this is never going to work. And, you know, having a machine, a, a cedar or a drill of, with half the tines missing and it's just going to be a disaster. And for them to see that in front of their eyes is quite incredible. And there's some funny stories about older farmers driving past and pulling up and going, oh, is this the one you did with half the machine missing? And and it's just a funny transition, but how it's become so successful and obviously, you know, trans transitioning into that. But we still have people in the district that, that do do things conventionally and it, it's actually still good to see. It's not, I guess it's sort of looking back into the past in a way, but they choose to do that. It's it's what they in, they enjoy and they choose to do. But I guess the thing when you're a younger person, say when I was 30 years ago, you don't want to spend endless hours on machinery, preparing soil, running over it three or four times. So the one pass seeding was very appealing to anyone that was under 25 at the time, I guess, as much as anyone might like machinery and sitting on tractors as young people do, but the least amount of time in reality is you can, and that's what it is. And basically letting the soil prepare itself you know, you don't have to do a lot to it. You can just let nature take its course. And that's what we've all discovered and, and refined over the last 20 or 30 years, I think. Mate, can you explain to me, and, and maybe there's a few of the listeners as well, like what is no-till farming? And can you maybe explain it in terms of what it looked like before in your operation and how you actually have changed as time's gone on? Well, well I guess it was saying, like I was saying, preparing, the belief was always, and still is in many parts of the world, is a seed needs to be placed into a cultivated soil somewhere in that tilth 
in, in that area and that it will grow and the roots can grow into that freshly worked up soil. But basically, no till is basically putting the seed into the ground in any way. We're actually what we call zero till now because we're a disc seeder. So a disc seeder is simply slicing the ground open, peeling a soil back of ribbon, dropping a seed in and then folding it back in and then just letting and letting it find its own way through the soil. And that's where the absence, as many have discovered, the absence of tillage, the soil has macro pores and micro pores to stay open and old root channels. And if they're not disturbed, then the, the following crop follows those root channels down without the need to cultivate. But it, you can certainly see the older generation just couldn't believe that you could throw a seed in the, in the soil and it would grow it into a profitable crop. So you can, you can, it's just a whole mindset change. But I guess the fortunate thing is the ones of my generation, we were younger, so we weren't brought up with multiple years of this cultivation to put the seed in this tilth. And there's even, I guess, the veggie patch, there's still people want to dig and cultivate, but it is interesting now watching some of the gardening shows on, on TV that they are just dropping the seed on, in the surface and not worrying about digging it up, even though others do. But if you can leave all those worms and things in there, uh, just leave them how it is, then that just it's, just, it's just replicating nature as close as we can whilst growing cash crops, I guess. So we aren't, we aren't nature, but we're trying to be as close as we can and still make money. And as long as you don't put the seeds upside down, they should grow. No, I'm kidding. That's a terrible joke. <laughs> but like, was it evidenced in the first year and, and immediately that like it was going to work or did, did it take a little bit to, especially in your area, to see that older generation kind of come around to going, wow, it's working, it's doing its thing? Yeah, it, the machinery we had that we adapted to that first, uh, say, one pass seeding wasn't really equipped for it. So tine breakout is something that keeps that tine and the seeding depth in position. And, and they just weren't, because they were used to working in tilth in worked up soil. So that was the biggest disadvantage at the start. So if you were lucky enough to have a bit of moisture and get it in, you could clearly show without the cultivation of a grow, but, un, but there was many that it was the tine breakout of the machine couldn't keep the seed at a uniform depth. So parts of the field where it was loamier may be correct, and then the harder areas weren't. But it was it was still pretty clear the yield. The other thing, the crop did does grow a bit different in its growth stages through, or it used to. So for an older person to look at it and they'd go, this is not going to be any good because I had one looking like this years ago through cultivation. But it, it does. It, it does recover and grow slightly different. Something we do now, we're on closer row spacing, so we're the same seeds per square metre, but the crop architect architecture is different. Because it's got more room, because it's in closer rows, there's less seeds closer to each other, and it grows flatter. It's not as erect straight away as other ones do. But even today, we'll see agronomists look at it and go, oh, it just looks different than the neighbours in the same variety. But if he's on wider row spacings and has those same seeds in fewer rows, then the crop's more erect because there's more competition trying to push it up. So there's a lot of visual things, but in coming back to the point, simply the yield very quickly, the yield was identical or, and then even we'll just say it was the same. And then, but you'd saved all that fuel and working and time. And that was just a huge saving at, those, at that point. And uh, any, 
you know, machinery maintenance, hours on tractors and things like that. So you ended up with a very profitable crop at the end. And, but the savings of all that time was just very clear and evident. Hey, it's Nick here, sheep farmer and Rabobank Regional Client Council member. I'm passionate about supporting our local community so we can improve community wellbeing and build strong local economies. My job as a client council member is to help secure funding for regional grassroots initiatives. Those that support education in ag, rural health, sustainability, and help bridge the country-city divide. We've helped organisations like Boys to the Bush, funded school field days like Ag Vision, and held succession planning workshops, just to name a few. If you have an idea to make a difference to regional Australia, go to our website at www.rabobank.com.au and nominate via our community fund. We'd love to hear from you. And Ted, you've had the chance to go and see properties and farming across the UK, America and New Zealand. Like how, how did the perspectives of, of seeing those different countries kind of shape and compare compared to your neck of the woods down at Bordertown? Well, it's, we're all about just putting seed into soil and growing a crop, I guess. But th- there's a lot of similarities, really. But it was, it was, it's interesting in both of those countries with the adoption of no-till, there is ones that are doing it successfully. And then there's plenty that just say, you just can't beat a moldboard plough and plough it in and trying to be. And, and as we sort of know, the seasons change. And some years it may not suit perfectly, but the long-term gain is well and truly there. So there may be a slight event, a weather event or something that perhaps doesn't suit it at the time, but overall, in the end of the day, then then it's all good. I guess a lot of farmers want to see if you're going to change, you want it to be perfect in every way. And uh, it's almost a bit like changing over the brand of car you drive there's features on there that you haven't got on yours, but your current one, that you think are fantastic, but I bet you there's five features that it hasn't got that the other one did. So it's just how you adapt into that and see those features with your open eyes. But yeah, there's very passionate people in both in Europe and North America that are all, all keen on it, but there's also the ones that still think it's not going to work. Similar to here, but I guess Australia really, I think the adaption rate is really 80 or 90%. And you'll probably never capture those last 10% because they just choose to, you choose to do what you do on your own land. You know, what's really interesting, Ted, and I'm glad you say that because it is like people, it's their land. They can kind of decide what they want to do. And only in the last few weeks, it kind of, somebody said something to me and kind of had this trigger moment where I was like, oh yeah, you know what? Like it is actually really important that there is different people doing different things and that not everyone farms the exact same way or whatever it is. Because like in those little microcosms and micro communities of how different people grow things or whatever like that's what makes the sector kind of what it is and and the communities what they are because there's the different people in their different areas but also provides that perspective to go oh well, i actually do it this way because i probably like it and i think that's the point that you've made a few times which is really interesting yes no, no it is and that but it's a bit of a mindset as long as it's successful and you're you're meeting all your goals you want to the worst thing can be is someone that just goes, well, I haven't made a profit for years and, and then doing the same thing over and over and over again, getting the same result. And that's, that's disheartening, but because you can't, you can't convince anyone to change what they're doing. Really. You can show by example, it's, it's even something like our local ag bureau. Everyone does 
say stock works slightly different and, and things like that and runs sheep different the same sheep slightly differently but you can get an expert advisor in and give advice on things but 10 percent will never change what they're doing because they just believe that it suits exactly where they are but uh, there's a lot of similarities around everywhere that we're all very similar really absolutely so we've talked about i guess a little bit of the evolution of your business with especially the implementation of no-till. You've now got the next generation coming in. So what's on the horizon, both in the near term, but probably like, yeah, that three to five years out for you guys and, and what you're trying to do? Well, I suppose it's sort of like something we, we've always tried to focus on. Even though you think you're on a good thing, you still have got to try and evolve and try and approve little areas, but there's no drastic big step. So there's really... Trying a few different crops, I suppose, is our thing. What we're keen to do, it's very easy to grow the same crops. Like I said, in our area, we can grow a different array of crops, but there's higher risk in different crops generally. And that's why they're priced, the price of some of those, and that's what makes them attractive, but it's a higher risk. So it just depends what risk you want to take. But if you can, you've got a successful business, you can always take a bit of risk on a small area, you know, five or 10% and try something different. So, so trying a different crop, I suppose, chickpeas are something we, ha- we are dabbling in now. Um, and that's a result of the faber bean price dropping um, a couple of years ago. They did come up this year, but something that's, so along those lines to con- continually slightly evolve to see a few different crops could grow. And there's, there's other areas obviously grow them very well, but in our little area we are can be a little bit unique and there can be other issues, but, but along the way, I think just keeping things very similar, but just tweaking around the edges and that's what we're trying to do and then, and keeping them involved. So is there, I know we chatted about it at the beginning, but with, with, um, the Syngenta Growth Awards and being a winner, you do get to head overseas and, and have a look at a bunch of different farming operations and I guess different agricultural businesses really over there. Is there anything that's top of mind or something in particular that you're kind of heading over with maybe like an intention to look at something or gain an understanding or are you taking it pretty open-minded? Well, pretty open-minded, I suppose, but I guess going along the biological approach is something that is is of great interest and see there are companies developing products now such as the nitrogen products that can take nitrogen out of the air into a wheat crop if you apply. So things like that evolving to use what we've already got and then pest control, what other people are doing, things like slug control, what sort of works. Slugs are an issue in our area. So that'll be interesting, but we've just got to keep in mind that biological side, but not drifting too far. We've still got to make, we've got to be profitable is always the goal. But if we can look at those areas, so that's, that'll be interesting in that sort of space to see, see what it is. The technology is something else as well that would be good to see. On the farm, we did have a few years ago, one of the universities had a spore trap for fungal diseases and that funding ran out. But timing sprays with the fungal load when those spores release, and if you can have a trap to monitor these things and really you should be able to have a like a spore trap an insect trap for everything so really you can cut back on that preventative spray that you don't actually need 
So I know with this spore trap for fungal diseases in beans, there was the first three years, two of those years, there wasn't enough spores to warrant a spray. But we all do a preventative spray because a preventative spray is much more important than a reactive spray. But if you can have the technology in your field or paddock and just work exactly with that when those spores, you can set, they do have moisture, you know, humidity and temperature is, is a driver of when these things can start. And that's a guide in vineyards and things, I believe. But all these, the spore traps, the one, if it, once that spore's relief, it should be perfect. And I think what'll be interesting, I've met with a couple of the different winners and agronomists, cotton growers, viticulturalists as well. Super interesting and something that I really learned lately was how the cotton industry has evolved from what was, say, 10 to 15 in-crop sprays that they were doing to now, like, insecticide buyers. They're, one of the growers had only done one in the last three years, and that was through biological controls. It was through better, I guess, seed technology and better growing practices. It's so fascinating what you'll be able to yeah, learn off those different guys and, and girls as part of it as well. Yes, no, that's right. And you just got to be open to all those areas of working and not be too focused on being anti, anti-technology. Absolutely. So, Ted, I'm interested, when they announced that you were the winner, what was running through your head, having seen different people across the night, met different people? What were you thinking? Well, I suppose I was just, I was surprised. Obviously, if you're in it, you're in the running. But yeah, I, I didn't really expect, yeah, because you do meet others through the day and listen and think, geez, like he's, he's right on the ball and whatever. And, but I guess it's whatever. Yeah. I guess that's why they have 10 judges to, to work it all through. But uh, yeah, no, it was, it wasn't it was a surprise, but it was, yeah, it was really good. So, how, like, I'm not going to say, how'd you find the process, but like, what have you gained personally from it so far? Like, through that experience of the application, what has been one key thing or key highlight of your farming career so far? And, and other questions like that. What's that been like? I suppose one of the things that's just a sort of a, a buy thing of, of anything like this is you do have to, sit down and work out what you do, how you do, how to explain it to someone else. So it's actually, you're almost giving a little peer review of your own situation. So that's probably something to, to sit down and write things down. So how, how can I make this into sense and, and what do we do and try and, yeah. So not that we're unique in any way, I suppose, but yeah, just along the way. And it, and it is good to meet, and I think just, just meeting those people it's it's quite funny sitting there with a, with a couple that we just ended up talking and they they were ended up being winners as well. So we thought that was funny at the end of the night and saying, "Oh, we you know sat together all day." So uh, yeah, it was it's just sort of funny meeting different ones, but and just I guess the different the different thinking too, which is good when you get all those different areas of people together because I think that's something I hear sometimes. You'll go to something and well, some people we deal with. Um, as a farmer, will just say whatever you say. They'll go, yes, that's right, because they because you're their client, and they don't want to lose you as their client. So they just sort of support you and agree with everything you say. They'll never say against, or they they might try and steer you off in a different direction. But when you're in a different group, everyone just says what they think, and because you're not. Well, I wasn't out to impress anybody else, sort of through the day. But meeting other people, but you just sort of speak yourself, and it's just good to hear different opinions and you can say something because you don't want to be a soundboard like a mirror image or a mirror 
sounding of everyone else. You've got to be a bit different. And that's how different things come in. And then it might be just be the, the light bulb moment for someone else to then give the answer that you're looking for. So, uh, yeah, just that bit of stimulation, I guess, to, yeah, to, to think. And, th- and that's what it's all about. I've heard one of the trips, a, a local farming group went to New Zealand on a bit of a study tour 10 years ago. And the feedback I got after was they wanted to know what everyone got out of it. And one of the guys goes, well, I met one of the other participants and he answered, he solved three of my problems in the airport lounge waiting to go, sitting in Melbourne, waiting to fly to New Zealand. So that was, you know, so they were three problems he had on his, in his business and he solved them by sitting there talking to this bloke he didn't know in the hour leading up to get on the plane. Nothing to do with New Zealand at all, but that's, that's what it's about. You've just got to be there in the discussion because something will trigger something and make you think. And then, yeah, and that, I think that's the best thing. Totally, Ted. Nah, I think you bang on there, that kind of peer learning. I tell you, it's the secret of a podcast. You get the chance to ask people different questions of things you're trying to work out and you just get to pick their brain on things that you're trying to work out or, or overcome yourself. So, mate, I'm bloody excited for all of you. It's going to be such an interesting group to be part of. And I think that, as you say, that peer-to-peer learning of different experiences of how people approach different things is going to be fantastic. Yeah. Well, Ted, thank you so much for um, coming and having a chat. Good luck with your year of travel and farming and everything else that you've got to juggle this year. And um, hopefully we can yeah keep abreast of what you guys are up to and, and even circle back later on and, and see what some of the takeaways were and, and maybe why others should look to try and get involved if they have the opportunity as well. No, it's all about the opportunity, so taking those opportunities, so yes. Fantastic. Thanks, Ted. Right, thank you. Thanks, Ollie. Well... That's it for another episode from us here at Humans of Agriculture. We hope you're enjoying these podcasts and, well, if you're not, let us know. Hit us up at hello at humansofagriculture.com. Get in touch with any guest recommendations, topics or things you'd like us to talk and get curious about. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend, rate, subscribe, review it. Any feedback is absolutely awesome and we really do welcome it. So look after yourselves, stay safe, stay sane. We'll see you next time. Say up.